Well, if you want to find your Bibles and turn to the book of Ephesians, we are making our way through Ephesians chapter, uh, we're in Ephesians chapter 4, we've been walking through this book, and I want you to know it is a delight to see you. If you're here for like Baylor Parents Weekend or just visiting, uh, my name's Grant, I'm one of the pastors, and it is a joy to have you with us. We're in Ephesians chapter 4 this morning, and uh, I really, I hate to say this, but uh, it seems like it's going to be a long year if you're a Dallas Cowboy fan. I just... I just think I need to put that out there. I saw a little bit of the game, and I'm like, oh, my. You know, we always have high hopes, right? And, uh, and this, this year was unlike any other year. Uh, we just, we just kind of thought it was going to be the year, right? And then, of course, uh, we had a game last night or last Sunday, and, and we have some uh, other issues that we need to be thinking about. And so I thought maybe just to tell you that I want to bring you back in time back to the beginning of the Dallas Cowboys and a coach by the name of Tom Landry. Tom Landry is considered one of the finest coaches in NFL football. He's, he won two Super Bowls. He was in two others. He has five NFC championships. I mean, he was a, quite an originator. He is the one that introduced flex defense. He brought back the uh, shotgun formation, shifting in the backfield. Um, he was, he's known as an outstanding coach. But for those who actually knew Tom Landry, they knew him and esteemed him and valued him and respected him for his character, especially for his just uncompromising integrity and faith in Christ. And those that worked with him, those who played for him, will speak rather freely about how this man lived out his faith. Now, he wasn't perfect. There are, I want you to know there's only been one perfect person to ever walk this earth. His name is Jesus Christ. But those who follow him and know him are to a degree reflect his likeness. You see, Jesus makes the difference. And so when I show you Tom Landry, I want you to know that Jesus made the difference in his life. Uh, one of my friends, Burton Lawless, he is a Super Bowl champion. He was a guard for the Dallas Cowboys, number 66. And Burton Lawless has at different times told me of what it was like to play for Tom Landry. And Tom had all these principles that he'd introduce. Uh, he was, he spoke freely of his faith. At times, he would actually even quote Bible verses. And you could just tell by how he talked to his players that this relationship with Jesus Christ was really important to him. Uh, he also told me that uh, Tom Landry would walk around and say, listen, my job is to get you to do what you no- don't want to do so you can accomplish what you've always wanted to accomplish, like win a Super Bowl. And he would put him through it. And that's why he was such high discipline. And he had his team just kind of like totally locked in because they had high goals and high hopes. Um, another guy, you might recognize him on the right there, number 54. Anybody know who that is? Ooh, yeah, Randy White. He was a co-MVP in the Super Bowl. Randy White said this about Coach Landry. Quote, the thing that I admire most about Coach Landry was the example that he set. Not so much as a football coach, but for the person that he was. He didn't just talk the talk, he walked the walk. And I've always respected him because of that. In February of 2000, when Tom Landry went home to be with the Lord, they had several memorial services, one of which one player after another got up and gave testimony 
of the remarkable character, integrity, and faith of this man. A man who not only talked the talk, but he walked the walk. And friends, that is how it's supposed to be. And you might be going like, well, how does Jesus really make a difference in the lives of his people? The answer to that question is the book of Ephesians. In fact, we're going to look specifically at it in this passage we're going to study in Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 through 6. But the whole theme of the book of Ephesians is the story of God in the lives of his people. And so for three chapters, first three chapters, we have seen the amazing riches of relationship with Christ the great doctrines of the faith. It tells us how we, uh, who we are, our identity in Christ, rooted in the triune God, the immensity of his love. Chapters 4, 5, and 6 talk about our responsibilities, our response, how we live in light of the reality that we are in relationship with this living, immense, loving God. Like you see in Ephesians chapter 3, verse 17, it says, Christ dwells in our hearts by faith, and you and I are rooted and grounded in his love. So what does that really look like? Friends, I want you to know that the book of Ephesians really kind of just uh, spells out in great detail the mission of our church to glorify God by living out the life we have in Christ. And just like our vision is to grow deep in our relationship with him, growing deep, we have the response of reaching out, of living out this faith we have in him, to not only be able to talk the talk, but more importantly, to be able to walk the walk. And so how does Jesus really make a difference in the lives of his people? Well, let me just show you. Chapter 4, beginning in verse 1, relationship with Christ develops the life of that we lead. So take a look. He says, Therefore, I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called. That first word, therefore, is a very important word. It is like a giant hinge from chapters 1, 2, and 3 that speaks of the riches of relationship with the living God, everything we have in Christ to chapters 4, 5, and 6, how do we live in light of this reality? How do we live in response to who he is? Or like the text says, how to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. But you might have missed this. Paul says, therefore, I, the prisoner of the Lord. This is the second time that he's referenced that he's a prisoner of the Lord. Chapter 3, verse 1, he began that exact same statement, I'm the prisoner of the Lord. That's actually a very deeply personal and insightful statement. He didn't see himself as like, well, I've been incarcerated by the Romans, and at this point, it's been about four years. This is an understanding and the kind of statement someone that really knows God makes. Yeah, I'm a prisoner, but it's not of Rome. The Lord has me here. I'm his prisoner. I'll be in this Roman prison. I'll be incarcerated as long as the Lord wants. But it's also deeply insightful to show us this. You can have absolutely miserable circumstances and still bloom and flourish in the grace of God. And that's what Paul is doing. This is pretty powerful. Do you have it tough? You got some health issues? You got some circumstances in your life that make life very difficult for you? Welcome to reality. 
But I want you to know that you can flourish in the grace of God when you find your identity in him. And that's what we have here with Paul. You see, our relationship with Christ develops the life that we lead, and it starts with our identity. We see ourselves like, hey, if I'm here as a prisoner, I'm a prisoner of the Lord. And he says, I implore you, exhort, I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of your calling. This speaks of the fact that, like, on, on one hand of the scale, one side of the scale, you have the immensity of God, his love, his grace, his power. He's the one who took you from the domain of darkness and transferred you into the kingdom of the beloved son. You and I once were enslaved to sin, right? We walked in death and darkness. We were dominated by Satan. But I want you to know God in his amazing grace took us out of death and darkness and for by grace you've been saved through faith and he put us into relationship with Christ. We are alive by virtue of the resurrection. And this is the good news of the gospel. And Paul is saying, I urge you, I implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called. Our life is to match the reality of who we are in him. And friends, you can't do this on your own. You, that's why we need the presence of God. We need, it's the relationship with Christ, trusting him, asking him, just like Carrie said, calling out his name, asking Jesus for help. Instead of like, oh, I just got to buckle down and make it happen, we need to come to a place where we are God-dependent, Christ-centered individuals. It's the driving emphasis of Ephesians 1, 2, and 3. And when that is our reality, when we are walking with God, we are trusting him, our lifestyle will reflect it. And notice what he says. He says, walk in a manner worthy of the calling. Um, it literally has to do like your way of life. It's the Greek word peripateo. It, it literally is one step after another. It's how you live. And I love it's walk. It's not run. It's not jump. It's not plow or charge forward. It's walk. Walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. It's one step then another step. Small steps, if that's all you can take and that's all you can do, that's okay. Take a small step. But if you can take a bigger step, do so. But friends, I find this to be so very insightful on how the Christian life is lived. It's one step after another. Friends, this is so especially important when you don't feel like it. When you don't feel like walking with God, or you feel distant from him, or you kind of made a mess of things, and you got some sin to confess, and you got a some bunch of wreckage in front of you, and all you have to do is look in the mirror because you're the one that caused most of it, what do you do? Give up? Uh, no. You walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. It's, God, help me just take the next step of faith, and to trust you, and to move forward. And that's what he says. Walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. And you're like, well, how do you live like that? Like, what kind of life is that? Well, glad you're asking the question because guess what he answers? He spells it out. Verse 2, he tells you, and there's, I want you to know there's a reason why this is underlined in my Bible because I need to know what is it that Christ is seeking to accomplish and do through my life? What does it look like to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord? Well, the first thing he says is with all Humility. You see that? Now, you aren't too startled by that 
But I want you to know in the Greek and Roman world, humility was mocked. Humility was not a virtue. In fact, what it brought to mind was abject, a servile position of a slave. And for the the Greeks and the Romans, they felt like there was no self-respect with humility. And that's kind of the mindset. Pride, arrogance, boy, that'll get you noticed. That's what's important, self-accomplishment. But then along comes Jesus, and he is God incarnate, wisdom personified. And you know how he comes? He comes with humility. In fact, he says this of himself. The son of man is gentle and humble in heart. Whoa. Or like he said in Mark 10, I didn't come to be served, but to serve. Or like right before Jesus goes to the cross, he has this Passover meal with his disciples. And you know what he does? He washes their feet. And man, I'll tell you what, that, that one act made a statement of the greatness of what it means to be humble. Humble. This, all, all this power, all this strength, all this character and integrity, being able, willing to serve. You see, to be humble is to see yourself as you are, absent of arrogance and self-aggrandizement, where you're always trying to make a a show of who you are and what you can do and how many likes that you have. I mean, it's really easy to kind of get into this trap of just like, hey, what are people thinking about me? Because I need to always be the star of the show. When you're walking in a manner worthy of the Lord, you're like, hey, God is the one who's in charge here. He's the Lord of my life. And I want to look like him. When you come to that point, guess what he starts shaping in you? Gentleness. A freedom from pride. The ability to have concern for others. And by the way, I'll tell you this. That humility is the key to teachability. Can I ask you? How teachable are you? When someone tries to help you or points out like, hey, there's a better way of doing things or, or here's, here's how you kind of missed it on this one. How do you respond? Do you recoil and attack? Just sit there and say nothing? Or do you go, whoa, finally, a friend who loves me enough to help me. You can answer the question how humble you are by how teachable you are. You see what Jesus is doing? He says he's calling us to walk in a manner worthy of his calling and it'll look a lot like humility. Second of all, notice what else he says. With all humility and gentleness. Or maybe your Bible translates it meekness. It means mild-spirited or self-control. It's, it's an attitude. Where, where humility is an attitude, gentleness is an action. It's the expression of humility. So when you're humble before God and you're walking in humility before others, you can do so with gentleness. You have self-control. And this was a word that was used uh, in terms of wild animals that were tamed, especially horses. You know, I mean, horses are really powerful. And, and like a wild horse, or if you've ever seen wild horses, you, can, you probably don't have an opportunity too often to see them out in the wild, but maybe you can even watch something on a, on a show, and you can look at them, and, and they are impressive animals. But they're really not 
good for a lot of things. Uh, like you can't like, well, I think I'll have my kids ride this, right? Uh, no, you can't, you can't work cattle with a wild horse, right? Because if the horse isn't broke, uh, it doesn't think too kindly of anybody uh, in, in any way, shape, or form getting in their way of what they want to do. In fact, if you try to ride a wild horse, you know what we call that, don't you? We call it a rodeo, okay? And rodeos, pretty entertaining, like watching those cowboys on top of that horse. It's not so entertaining for the guy who's strapped on to that, you know, that horse. They're hanging on for dear life. Friends, the word here is gentle. It is coming to a place where you're now under God's control, where you're yielded to him. You've been tamed by him and all the strength that he gives you, all of the gifting, the power of his spirit. Now, why, it's in control of the master. Now we can have some serious productivity. Now we can really walk in his ways. Now God is really going to be doing his work in you and through you. Why? Because you've got gentleness. You're under his control. I heard of a, a young father who was at the grocery store with his, his young son. I guess the son was about like two years old. And it was not going well at the shopping trip. The, the two-year-old was pitching a fit and uh, at different times, like pulling stuff off the, sh- the shelves, you know. And dad was putting stuff in the basket and the basket's full. You know what it is when you're shopping for a family. I know this from firsthand experience, you know. You get all, this, all these groceries in there and sometimes the kid would take stuff out and throw it on the, on the floor. And, and as this young dad is, is walking with his son, he's trying to do the grocery shopping. He's like, easy, Donald. Calm down, Donald. It's, it's going to be okay, Donald. You, you got this? Calm down. It's going to be okay, Donald. Easy now. Gentle, gentle. And there was a, a, a woman that was watching this. Others were kind of giving him a wide berth. You know how you do that when you see like, why don't you just take the whole lane here? Okay, I'll, do, I'll go someplace else. Well, um, this one lady approached him and said, you know, you're an amazing dad. How you speak to your son and how you're calming him down and that, that gentleness, I, I, just, I just want you to know that was impressive to see. And then she goes right to that little boy that's sitting in the cart there. And she goes, whatever seems to be the matter, Donald? And the dad goes, no, 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 wait, that's Henry. I- I'm Donald, okay? I- I'm Donald. That's Henry on there. And I want you to know that is the art of self-leadership right there. When you find yourself in a situation where you're absolutely, completely dependent upon the mercy and grace of God right there in the grocery store, right? To be able to remind yourself what Jesus is seeking to accomplish in your life. And by the way, you're like, hey, I'm not really so good on this whole, this gentleness bit here. Uh, Where do you go to learn that? Let me tell you. Ready? Jesus. What? Yeah, Jesus said this, Matthew 11, 29. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. I am gentle and humble in heart, and you shall find rest for your souls. Got a lot of inner turmoil going on? You want to learn a little bit about gentleness? Look to Jesus. Ask him. He's looking to develop this in your life. And then notice what else he says. With all humility and gentleness, you know what else a worthy walk looks like? Let me tell you what God's looking to do in your life. And this is a big word here. With patience. 
Of all the three virtues we've looked at, boy, I tell you what, this has got to be the toughest right now because this is exercising humility and gentleness in the face of circumstances and people that are discouraging, times that are frustrating, in fact, sometimes that are just downright offensive people to be patience, to extend grace. And it's like our society is grooming us not to be patient. I mean, it's just like we have to respond to this immediately. And I mean, we're, we're just never patient. And I'll, I'll just give you some examples of what this looks like. Like to, maybe after church today, you go home and like you're going to make yourself a hot dog. And so what do you do? You put it in the microwave for 30 seconds. Probably not a whole lot longer than that. Otherwise, you're going to have explosion. You'll have a bigger mess. But you, you put it in there. And even while it's cooking, right? And it, it's spinning around there. And you're looking at it and you're like, come on, come on, come on, heat up. You know, you're, we're just... We're just like that. Or when you're like printing, uh, like you're printing a document in the printer, and it's, it's just going so slow, you know? And so what do we do? You pull the paper out of the printer, right? And it smears all the ink. Why do I even know this? Okay, I, I just know these things happen, and, and you have to do it again, right? Because you've made a bigger mess because you just couldn't be patient. You thought pulling it out would make it work. Or, or this one, I saw this even yesterday. Driving and, and there's the person that I've, I've just got to get ahead, right? And they're weaving through traffic. It's totally dangerous. And, and they're getting maybe two cars ahead, right? But then when you get to the stoplight, why they got in the wrong lane and you pull up right alongside them, right? You know? Why do we drive like this? Because we're not patient. We need God to do a work in our heart to make us like his son. So we walk in a manner worthy of him, and he does. And people that are patient... They create an atmosphere, an environment of grace. This is not a strong suit for me. Hence, this keeps me very God-dependent. I think I know how it should work and the timetable it should work. God is in the business of shaping me to be like his son. And that involves patience. And by the way, how many of our relational problems would be resolved if we simply exercised grace and patience? And then he says, furthermore, we are to do this. You want to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord? Notice what he's doing. Showing tolerance for one another in love. This is making allowances for the faults and failures and the different personalities and the different temperaments that we are actually being tolerant of people. And this isn't like having a facade of like, well, a facade of courtesy, but like inwardly, you're just bitter and totally upset about the whole thing. That's not showing tolerance. The only way that we'll really ever give grace to people, people that are growing just like you, maybe at different stages of development, going through difficulties that you may not understand, the only way this will ever happen is how Paul writes it will happen. You show tolerance one another. Here it is. Do you see that at the very end of the verse? In love. It's the Greek word agape. It's the kind of unconditional love that God has for us. You know who's really tolerant and really patient? God is, right? He is with me. Pretty sure he is with you, right? And that same characteristic, showing tolerance, patience, gentleness, why we're to reflect the likeness of God with others. And now this isn't like, well... Man, if that's what we're supposed to do, then I just need to tolerate sin, wickedness, uh, the immorality or whatever is going on here. We'll just kind of ignore all that. I'm supposed to be tolerant. No, 
It's not forsaking the faith or the truth, but it's rather having a heart to extend grace and to be accepting and to value unity with one another. In fact, that's what he says next. We are to, verse 3, being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. You see, you and I are to be diligent to preserve the unity that God has created. We don't create the unity. Do you see it? It's already been established. Really? Who established it? God did. You see, what God has done is he has brought people from every imaginable background. For instance, Jewish people, and we have people in our church that come from a Jewish background. We also have a lot of folks that are Gentiles, non-Jewish people. We are all one body. We have one Savior, one head, Jesus Christ. We have people from every economic background. Uh, The unity that we have are people of every ethnicity. Every ethnicity declaring, demonstrating the glory and the goodness of God. We are all united in Christ by him. That is our unity. And we are to be constantly endeavoring to maintain it. I want you to know that the great enemy of our souls, this is his point of attack, the unity. We have 2,000 years of church history to show it. I mean, we're talking fractures, fights, schisms. I mean, church history is difficult to read because of like Christians killing Christians in the name of Jesus. Like, where does that even come from? I can assure you, It doesn't come from God or this book, right? And I'll tell you, Satan is pretty good at tearing ministries, small groups, life groups, Bible studies, and even churches up. In fact, he seems to specialize in it. I want you to know that in each one of us, there's enough flesh to break down and destroy your life group or your ministry or this church. And that's why Paul writes, we are to be diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. If you're walking in a manner worthy of the calling, you're really experiencing relationship with Christ, then you are going to pursue unity. And I want you to know, we are so self-centered, and it's got to be just the way I want it. And if it's not, why, then we're upset, or we're going to tear this apart, we're going to make a real issue out of it, there's going to be a lot of drama Can I ask you, who is the Lord of your life and the Lord of this church? And by the way, if you think you can mess around with unity, you need to know who you're dealing with. The Holy Spirit of God. He's the one who's established the unity, and he wants us to further it, and that's why this is written. You see, to walk in a manner worthy of the calling is to be diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. That is going to require us to think differently and more deeply about the problems and the issues that we face. I want you to know, like, as a a pastor, I, I feel like I live in the world of problems, kind of like a magnet for them, right? But I, I try to remember this, that with God, I can be bigger than the problem. Why? Because he is. Craig Groeschel wrote a book called Confessions of a Pastor. And in that book, he actually talks about how hurting people hurt others. And that is the case. If you're kind of a hurting person, you have a tendency to hurt others, okay? And there are hurting people in this world, even hurting people in our church. 
And how is it that we are to respond to them? How do you respond to those who just are just highly critical? Uh, they, they don't, they're at a point maybe where they don't even like themselves, right? Like an injured bear. How are we to handle that as those who walk in a manner worthy of the calling? Well, he writes of a time where uh, he was, it was just minutes before he was going to get up and preach the word. His eyes were closed. He was praying. It was in the time of worship. And someone he didn't even see slipped him a note. And he had it, and he saw it. And on the, on the note, it just said, personal. And he thought, oh, how cool, you know? Someone in the church just writing me a note to encourage me right before I go and preach the word, you know? How, how cool is that, right? And so he had said, like, this like, loving feeling just came like all over him. And then he opened up the note, and he read it. And as soon as he finished, he said, and that loving feeling, it is gone, gone, gone. Whoa, 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 right? And it's just gone. This woman, he took it from the cursive writing, had apparently come to the church on Friday, which was his day off, and he wasn't there. And she just blam-blasted him with all this criticism and hatred and hateful accusations. And he's just like, oh, this is like literally now seconds before I'm going to go up and preach. He said, I have a choice to make. I can either go with depression or I can go with compassion. What is going on that would have someone respond in such a poor manner and respond like that? And for friends, that's what we need to do. To be able to come with understanding, care, peace, gentleness, Unity, tolerance, compassion. And that's what Jesus is seeking to do. You see, a relationship with Christ, he actually develops us through the life in which we lead. We live differently, and we can because of him. But let me show you something else. Relationship with Christ develops not only the life that we lead, but also the unity that we share. And that's what you find in verses 4 through 6. You see, seven times in these three verses, he says one one, one. We have a unity that is rooted in the triune God. You're going to see spirit, son, father. And this unity is not a unity at any cost. It's like, well, it doesn't matter what anybody does. And even if it's totally sinful, and we have Bible verses that tell us that that kind of morality is wrong, we're just going to ignore it. And we'll just avoid those passages because we got to have unity at all costs. I want you to know that is not the kind of unity that God is establishing. It is a unity on the shared relationship with Christ and the essentials and the doctrines of the faith. It's based upon God and his word. And it's not uniformity, it's unity. Of all people of all differences, yet our commonality is in Christ and we're moving forward together by faith. And so he says, this is what this unity looks like, this unity that we share. Verse 4, there is one body. Did you see it? It's there is. It's not there will be. There is. It's already established, and there is one body. Speaking of the fact that Christ is the head, and every single person that is in relationship with Jesus Christ, you are now a part of the body. We are called to live and to function as those who are directly tied to the head. There is one body. There is one universal church of those who are truly believers. Now, there are plenty of people that either identify with Christianity or may even say that they're Christians. They could even go to a church 
but you actually have to know Christ. You actually have to have Christ dwelling in your hearts by faith, or you're not truly a Christian, and you're actually not in the body. You may pretend to be, but you're not. You've got to really know him. But for those of us who do know Jesus, by his grace, guess what? We are a part of one body, and it's his body. And there are a lot of local manifestations of it. But one thing that we do find, it's not like, well, that means that we just need to have like, well, there's a black church over here and a white church over here. And, and here, this is where the rich people go. And here's the folks that are not so rich. Here's the poor people. We, we're not to have like, well, these are folks that are kind of a traditional type people church. And this is where the hip and cool folks are. And there's this church here. I want you to know, that's not New Testament Christianity. That's not the church. The church is really people from every background, every economic setting, every ethnicity, Jew, Gentile, all called together into one body where we're learning to love one another and we are directly tied to Christ who is the head. And then he says, we are, keep reading here, what's this unity we have? Where's one body, there is one spirit speaking of the Holy Spirit, that brings regeneration, the very one who gives life to our body, life so that we can actually serve one another, worship God. Guess where that comes from? It comes from his spirit. There is one hope of our calling. Do you see that? We have the hope, a certain hope, that when we die, we will experience eternal life with God himself, and that God himself is shaping us into the image of Christ, There is one hope of our calling. And look at verse 5. There is one Lord. There is one who died for us, who lived a perfect life, who has redeemed us, who has saved us. And do you know what the word Lord means? We say it so often, I think we kind of forget. Does anybody know what it even means? It means master, right? There is one who is in absolute sovereign control. And friends, a lot of the unity problems that a church might have or you might have, they all go away when Jesus is the Lord of your life. Because after all, it's him that we're serving. It's Christ that we're in relationship. There is one Lord. And there is furthermore, one faith. Do you see that in verse 5? There is one settled uh, body of doctrine of truth. It's like it says in Jude 3, the faith once for all delivered to the saints. It is recorded in scripture. We have one faith. Our unity is like we saw in Ephesians chapter 2 verse 20. It is Christ, the cornerstone, and the foundation of what? The apostles and the holy prophets. You see, there is Christ, the cornerstone, and the word that he's given us. Our unity is based on that. And so if you depart away, completely leave or abandon the inerrant and fallible scriptures, and Jesus, you're shaping him into your image, that's not the unity and the oneness that he's calling us to. Our oneness is in the one faith. And furthermore, he goes on to say, there is one baptism. This, I believe, is speaking of the water baptism that takes place when someone puts their faith in Christ. Uh, You saw that in verse 4 where we're in the Holy Spirit. That speaks of the fact that when you and I place our faith in Christ, we are baptized in the Holy Spirit. You receive the Spirit 
Like we saw from Ephesians 1.13, at the moment that you believe the gospel, his spirit seals us. But the manifestation that you and I truly uh, know Christ, the very first step of obedience that we see is that we who know Christ identify with him publicly. That's what water baptism is. It is a public identification and an expression of an inward reality. I know Christ. I'm willing to identify with him. I am baptized. The Greek word uh, baptizo means to immerse or submerge. And so you identify with Christ in baptism. There is one baptism. And notice what he says in verse 6. There is one God. And notice how he's described. One God and Father of all, whose overall, speaking of his transcendence, his unshared sovereign power, he is over all and through all. He's working through his people. He is imminent. He is directly involved. He's accomplishing his purposes. And notice what he says, and he is in all. The indwelling presence of his, of his spirit is in his people. Do you see our unity is founded in the triune God. Friends, this, that, is, that is such a holy thought, that God has brought us together in his character in the three in one, the triunity of God, that our oneness is found in his presence and is directly tied to the three persons of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And so when he says there is one and we are to be diligent to preserve the unity that of the faith, friends, that is what we must do. You know, unity is kind of like a fire. You ever been around a campfire and it's all great, you know, and you got the fire burning? But do you ever notice that the campfire like kind of like dies down? What do you do when your campfire dies down? Does anybody know? That's right. You put some more, put some more logs, on the, logs on the fire. You guys have been there, right? And the fire happens to continue to increase because it's got more fuel. Friends, that is to be our life. We who know Christ, why we are to pursue this unity that we have in him. And so can I ask you, what are you doing to further the unity of Christ in our church? You can't be passive. You can't be along for the ride. We're to be engaged, and we can because of Christ. And so will you join me in committing ourselves to the furthering of God's glory through the living out of this relationship that we have in Christ and this unity we share with him? You see, the love of Christ develops our way of life. Let's pray. Lord, we want to thank you for your word. Thank you for an opportunity just to open up your book and once again have your spirit shape our understanding, fuel our desire, give us strength and joy in you. And Father, if there is someone here who has never truly trusted in you, would they pray with me now and say, God, I turn from myself and my sin. This morning, Lord, I put my faith in Jesus, the risen one, and I ask for your leadership in my life. And God, for those of us who know you, may we walk in your ways. May we live out the qualities that you are instilling, developing in us. And may we honor you with the unity that we share for your glory. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Grant. What a good message. What a foundational message. It's interesting. We start off talking about 
the Cowboys season and immediately talk about gentleness and meekness and patience and bearing with one another, but maybe that'll be in victory, right? Not necessarily defeat. Um, no, but what a foundational message about us as a body, how we interact, how we are there for each other. And that really ties into what we were talking about, our focus of our prayer and our care ministry uh, this week. And so, as always, there's a prayer team at the back that they exist because they want to be there for you. They want to come alongside and pray with you and lift your, your needs and your requests up before the Lord. And we are here as a body to do just that. And so I think of no better way to, to end these foundational verses with what did Paul say right before we got into these verses? He says, Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, according to his power that is at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations. Amen? Amen. Go with God. Have a blessed week.